Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This hour, the changing face of local elections. Uh, There are no statewide races or ballot measures for Iowa's elections. They are next Tuesday, November 7th, but there are plenty of local races to watch and participate in. First, some um, information about basic voting. Uh, The polls are open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. next Tuesday, November 7th. Uh, On the ballot, city officials to school board members in your community. Uh, And make sure you know your polling place before you head out the door. You know, we've had some recent redistricting Uh, Your polling place may be different than you remember. Uh, If you're not sure about your voter registration, you can always check your status with the Iowa Secretary of State's office or just go to voterready.iowa.gov. And Iowa does offer same-day voter registration. Um, So don't let that stop you. Joining us later on the program, political scientist Megan Goldberg of Cornell College. She's been studying school board elections, how some of those have become very contentious, some of those races. Also, Iowa State University rural sociologist Dave Peters um, about how politics and aging populations, among some other factors, are making some city government and other elected positions pretty hard to fill. But first, let's start by focusing on local elections in our state capital. Virginia Beretta is with us. Virginia is the Des Moines city government and Polk County reporter with the Des Moines Register. Virginia, welcome to our program. Hello, Ben. How are you? I am fine. In Des Moines, this is for the first time in about two decades. Voters won't have a chance to reelect Frank County as mayor. Um, There are four candidates, I believe. Tell us about them. Yes, absolutely. So there are four candidates that are now running for mayor. It is Connie Bozen. Um, She is currently the at-large representative on city council. She actually served on the school board um, for 14 years, and she was elected to the city council in 2017. She started on the council in 2018. You know, she grew up in Des Moines, and uh, fun fact, she runs the Appalachia Stand at the Iowa State Fair. We also have Josh Mandelbaum, and uh, he is currently Ward 3 council member. He represents areas like the downtown and the East Village. He works as an environmental attorney for a nonprofit that's focused on climate change and clean water He was also elected to the city council in 2017 and also started in 2018. He he too grew up in Des Moines. Um, We also have Denver Foote, who uses they, them pronouns. They're a cosmetologist and activist, and they really participated in the protests following George Floyd's murder in 2020. They grew up in Clear Lake, and they moved to Des Moines later on as an adult in 2019. They were pretty heavily involved in the Bernie Sanders campaign as well, and they're in local organizations like Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement. Now, the last candidate we have is Chris Von Arks. Um, He is a Des Moines security guard. Uh, He's also a musician. He's originally from Minnesota, but 
he has been in Des Moines for about four years. Mm -hmm. Okay, Uh, there's a look at the four candidates. Uh, They're quite different ages uh, there, different generations, I I guess I'll say, represented there. Uh, What are the main issues they are running on, uh, the messages they're trying to get out to uh, lure voters to their corners? Absolutely. So Bozen has often talked about, you know, on really bringing pride to Des Moines neighborhoods, You know, she's highlighted issues like development and really strengthening housing and businesses. She's also really touched on public safety and school. Um, Mandelbaum has often really referenced his young children. They're seven years old and nine. Um, He's said that he really wants to build a better future for them. He often talks about, you know, growing the city and creating affordable housing. He wants you know, a strong public transportation system, and he often brings up climate issues as well. Now, Denver Foot um, talks a lot about, you know, the urgency or the need to protect underserved communities. You know, we're talking about unhoused individuals, people of color, the LGBTQ community. They really want to also, you know, address the housing crisis They want to create a more accessible city through, you know, having transit and, you know, more pedestrian friendly neighborhoods. They also really want to divest funds from the police department to use for more social justice issues. One one example that comes up is, you know, putting some of that funding into the Human and Civil Rights Commission uh, for the city of Des Moines. Also, uh, one other thing that has come up too uh, consistently is decriminalizing marijuana. Mm. Now, for Von Arks, um, you know, in the conversations that I've had with him, he has talked about really wanting to lower property taxes, um, solving homelessness, uh, the homelessness crisis, and, you know, focusing on public safety. Now, I will mention that Von Arks has largely been absent from many of the forums and the debate though he did attend a debate that was hosted by KCCI in October. Mm, okay. Um, when you travel around the Des Moines area, and of course there are yard signs out, yard signs, one indication um, of of uh, the support a, a council or a mayor candidate in this case may have. Uh, what is your sense of the, the support for these candidates at this point? That's a good question. You know, it's hard to tell. Most of these candidates for mayor have really been present at, you know, different speaking events, engagements, forums and debates. Um, you know, they're often asked by community members different questions about their stances. And you do see yard signs. I see them often when I'm driving around. Um, I see predominantly I see, you know, yard signs for Josh Mandelbaum and Connie Bozen, but I have seen signs for Denver Foot as well. Virginia, let's pivot over to the city council election there in Des Moines. And uh, your reporting tells us there's potential for a real shakeup. Why? Yes. So besides the fact that there are multiple candidates running for mayor, there are also several open seats on the city council. So we have the at-large seat, we have the Ward 2 seat, and we have the Ward 4 seat. And we also have a special election in Ward 1. Now, this comes after Indira Shoemaker, who was formerly the Ward 1 council person, uh, resigned earlier this year. 
So there's a real potential for change. You know, we have those three incumbents um, in the at-large Ward 2 and Ward 4, um, but they have their challengers. Virginia, one of the themes uh, of this hour is how um, national politics is making its presence felt. Uh, also, state politics uh, in sort of municipal elections, local elections that we're talking about today. What is your sense of uh, of how that is or or isn't shaping these local races? You know, I'd really like to talk about that on the front of of the mayoral race here because. I've written a story recently that talks about what really separates the, you know, Bozen and Mandelbaum. You know, you go to these forums and it seems like, at least at a high level, they're pretty similar candidates, right? They talk about issues like affordable housing and public safety and really attracting families and businesses to Des Moines. Um, but, you know, they, they have their differences. And funny enough, it, it relates to their opinions on whether, you know, state and national level type issues really have a place in, in city politics. So, you know, Mandelbaum, for example, has really advocated for Des Moines to take stances on issues like reproductive rights and gun safety. Bozen, on the other hand, has largely stated that, you know, many of these issues should really stay at the state level and, you know, should be handled by state representatives, even if she agrees at the end of the day about these issues personally. Um, so so I would say that that's kind of where, where those differences lie. Virginia, you mentioned reproductive rights, abortion access, and I understand that's a contentious issue among these mayoral candidates. Yes, absolutely. You know, it, it, it really has become one of the points of contention during this race between particularly Josh Mandelbaum and Connie Bozen. You know, going back last year when the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, um, Mandelbaum actually introduced a resolution that would safeguard abortion in Des Moines um, in case, you know, there were any restrictions in Iowa that occurred. Now, fast forward, we know that there is a six-week abortion ban here in the state, but this all happened before that. Now, this resolution at the time included protections like making investigations into people who access access or provided abortions the lowest priority for police and city officials. And, you know, council members, including Bozen, said at the time that this issue should really be left up to the state or the federal government. And, you know, at the end of the day, the city council decided to stop talking about it and, and you know, refrain from talking about it further. Virginia, we want to make clear to our listeners, though, that, yes, uh, the six-week abortion ban has been passed by the Iowa legislature. Uh, it is not uh, in, enacted uh, uh, because it's being held up in court, right? Yes, it is currently being held up in court. And, you know, once again, the issue hasn't come back on council, but it has been one of Mandelbaum's core campaign tenants. And like I said, the issue has become a little bit contentious. You know, there was a little bit of drama with some flyers that were sent out from Mandelbaum's campaign where, you know, it talked about only he was the only mayoral candidate who stood up for women's health care rights. So that definitely came under fire from the Bozen campaign. It also came under fire uh, from Denver Foote, who addressed those uh, who addressed those comments and said that they have also been um, fighting for women's health care rights all along. 
Um, but more importantly, you know, it has really caused three other council members um, who are currently sitting on the council and running their own campaigns uh, decide to endorse Bozen. And they say it, that it really comes down to this issue. Well, Virginia Beretta, thank you very much for telling us about the, the uh, local elections going on in Des Moines. And uh, we look forward to talking with you again. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. Coming up after a short break, we'll be joined by political scientist Megan Goldberg of Cornell College. She's been studying school boards. Also, Iowa State University rural sociologist Dave Peters. That's when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. Back with more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Today, focusing on next week's school board, uh, city government elections, and uh, another reminder that if you're not sure if you're registered to vote or you're not sure about your polling place, there's an easy way to check that out, voterready.iowa.gov. Or just uh, search for the Iowa Secretary of State's office uh, on the web. Uh, They have many tools there to answer any of the questions you need having to do with voting. And there is same-day voter registration, so don't let that stop you. Um, uh, Go to voterready.iowa.gov. Well, school districts in Iowa face many challenges, uh, politics creeping into school board elections. Let's talk about the school board races that have become increasingly politicized and uh, how they've become higher profile and also more expensive. Joining me now in the Iowa City studio, Megan Goldberg, Assistant Professor of American Politics and uh, at Cornell College. Megan, it's not Wednesday, but we're sure glad you're here. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Glad to be here. <laughs> One of our political analysts uh, typically with us on Wednesday. To mention here, we've uh, talked in our talk shows uh, about uh, and a grant that you were awarded in 2022 to study how the pandemic impacted school boards across the U.S., how they're handling the pressure. So that gives you a, a lot of a uh, you have a lot of data. We have conversations uh, to talk about that. Before we do that, I want to remind our listeners that um, we'd love to hear from former local office holders in Iowa, uh, former members of a school board, a city council, a former mayor. Are you out there? Would you like to share your experience? Why did you run? When did you know it was time to leave? Uh, what did you learn from your time in office? one 780 9100 1-866-780-9100. Or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Megan, let's start off with your main takeaways from your study of school boards and how they're changing across the U.S., Yeah. So over uh, about a six-month period, my co-author at Virginia Tech and I uh, conducted a survey of school board members, but we also sat down uh, and interviewed over 
50 school board members from across the country. Uh, and so they were long interviews because they had so much to say uh, about how much their office and their job has changed. Uh, and so overall, school board members report that it is extremely stressful. It has gotten much more, not just political, but much more partisan. Um, and I think we see that reflected in Iowa. And we were sort of in our interviews focused on the pandemic, but it was sort of the start of this entire like tsunami of other issues coming to the forefront. Uh, and at the time, it was really focused around masking and vaccines and mm-hmm. the beginning of critical race theory. Uh, and now it's sort of expanded into all of these other issues, especially regarding in Iowa, um, school vouchers, um, the sort of rights, I guess, of parents and involvement in schools. Uh, and finally, uh, the curriculum when it comes to not just race, but also LGBTQ, uh, inclusion and representation, um, and banning books for sort of a, a wide range of reasons. Mm-hmm. You said you said political, but not only that, you said partisan. Some listeners may not understand the distinction there. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm sort of, um, as someone who studied local politics for a while, local politics has always been very political in terms of, you know, it's literally, and especially school boards, it's the administration of public policy. Uh, By its and, nature, it's policy. Exactly. Right. It's all about who gets what and when and how. Uh, But uh, a lot of what we heard from school board members was that sort of pre-pandemic school boards were consensus building uh, operations mm-hmm. that they would um, they were deliberative bodies uh, that people had a lot of faith in, especially when they saw that deliberation sort of out in the open, um, that school boards often are subject to very strict open meeting laws across many different states. Um, and so, you know, if you could sort of witness that deliberation, a lot of votes on school boards were unanimous. Um, or there'd maybe be like a lone dissent. And what I heard from school board members was that during the pandemic, uh, especially if they had experienced an election since the start of the pandemic, what they now were experiencing was polarization in the school board. Uh, and that sort of pre-pandemic, it was sometimes hard to know what party someone was, even in districts that were politically divided between the two parties, very purple districts. Um the school board usually would build consensus around an issue. But then sort of in this post-pandemic world, you get school boards voting Republicans together and Democrats together, even though uh, these are classically sort of nonpartisan offices and party uh, and partisanship usually doesn't come up. Mm-hmm. So I think I know the answer to this question, but and many of our listeners will, but what's driving the polarization? When did it first pop up? Was it during the pandemic or did it pre-exist the pandemic? So I think there's probably points in time where depending on how sort of education policy uh, is being handled at the national level that you might see partisan division. Um, But I think the pandemic really drove a lot of this because um, and and it was as the pandemic response Uh, grew very polarized based on party lines. Mm -hmm. Um, Because at the beginning of the pandemic, school boards were still unanimously voting to close schools in the spring of 2020 uh, to go online. Um, And they were putting all of these sort of emergency policies in place. And that was before we saw this division politically at the national level. And so that division just sort of trickled down. Um, And it was able to do so because you sort of have the emergence of these online spaces, uh, whether it's Facebook groups, or online forums where parents across the country um, are communicating sort of within their district, but also with other parents in other districts uh, to go and um, communicate with their school boards. Um, And so you see the same sort of like language used to talk about 
Opposition to masking, for example, you would see it pop up in like two rural school districts on opposite sides of the country. The exact same language. The exact same phrases, the exact same. I mean, this whole idea of like we won't co-parent with the government. Um, those, those sort of like you hear parents say it in these open comments. Mm-hmm. And it's because they're sort of linked together by national organizations that also emerged during this time. Mm-hmm. So, so take us before we go to the step that I was about to take, the result of this is that we have this stress, and I assume it's more time-consuming. There's more more time-consumed if you want to serve in one of these posts. It's more stressful. More people leaving those posts because this ain't what I signed up for. Yeah. So when we talked to school board members, everyone reported higher stress. Um, And interestingly, women reported much higher stress than uh, men who serve on school boards. Why should that be? Uh, So what we found is that women were just devoting a lot more time uh, to answering constituent emails, to talking to people. Um, And so that's sort of like where it's an avenue for further study that we're sort of trying to figure out. But it Mm -hmm. it sort of mirrors Women are more diligent, I guess you're saying, (laughs) right? Okay. Uh, I think they take on labor sometimes. Uh, (laughs) So, but I mean, uh, school board members across the board were sort of talking about getting, I mean, hundreds of emails, thousands of emails sometimes in a bigger school district yeah. from parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that a job that should have been a few hours a week suddenly is like 40 hours a week. And it, these are not paid. Um, and so all of a sudden it's this huge workload and all you get is people who are mad at you. Um, and so we had a, a somewhat high percentage, but higher than we expected, Um of people, I think it was like 27% either said they were deciding to definitely not run again uh, or that they would probably not run again at the end of their term. Mm-hmm. You're from eastern Iowa. That's where uh, you uh, live. Uh, so you are well acquainted, I think, with the Mount Vernon local elections, the Linmar uh, school board uh, elections there. What can you draw out of that specifically that relates to this conversation as as concrete examples of how this is happening in Iowa? Yeah, so I think both of these school districts in the 2021 elections uh, both had, and this is true in other districts in Iowa, of course, too, um, started to see the emergence of these really conservative candidates who are driven by either anti-mask policies, uh, anti-vaccine requirement policies, um, and starting to see now in this cycle official affiliation um, with groups like Moms for Liberty or other conservative groups. And so in, uh, I mean, Lindmar has been getting national attention. because of Republican candidates sort of drawing attention to them. Um, but even in Mount Vernon, we have a candidate who has been endorsed by Moms for Liberty. Um, and so this is sort of this national group that we know has existed um, endorsing a candidate. I mean, in a town of a few thousand people, uh, a school district with, um, you know, <laughs> a, a few hundred students mm-hmm. Um and but this sort of like national agenda gets imported into these very small local races where we're talking about maybe a thousand people voting. OK, our listeners have probably heard of Moms for Liberty. Uh, what is their agenda? Yeah. So Moms for Liberty is a national organization um, and they in we've seen them in Iowa um, in particular, advocating at the state level for school vouchers um, or ESAs, the educational savings accounts that were passed in the last legislative session. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the last legislative session, we also saw them advocating uh, in public comments um, for different legislation that would um, 
around LGBTQIA sort of inclusion issues when it comes to bathrooms or sports, um, and also the inclusion of these topics in the curriculum. Um, And so that's sort of what they're most famously known for, uh, is their support for, if you want to call them book bans, if you want to call it curriculum control, um, and sort of what you call it is very politically charged. Uh, But sort of the overall arching theme for Moms for Liberty is that they advocate for this small government approach to education. And so if you've heard the the phrase, we don't co-parent with the government, um, that comes from Moms for Liberty. Um, and so, but they're this national organization that works to develop uh, chapters that mirror the same sort of like government structure we have in the U.S. So it's a national group, but they also have state chapters and then county chapters and then local chapters. And all of Local those, chapters all across Iowa in all school districts, do you think? Uh, so not in all school districts. So you can actually go on their website and you can sort of like find the Lynn County one. And if you open the Lynn County one, there'll be a list of all of the Lynn County school districts. Mm-hmm. And the ones that have a link are ones that have sort of an active chapter. Um, And so you can see there is a link for Mount Vernon. Uh, I actually live in Lisbon, where surprisingly, even though it's more conservative as a town, there is no active chapter. Um, And and then in those in sort of at the county level, uh, they are recruiting and endorsing and training candidates to run for office. Mm -hmm. Okay, I guess a key question here is, to what degree does a group like Moms for Liberty, perhaps there are others out there similarly uh, with national uh, origins that come down into local communities, to what degree, for the sake of argument, the Moms of Liberty, do they reflect changes that the community wants, or is this driven from a national level and really doesn't reflect uh, a consensus among the community? You talked about consensus building. Uh, a consensus that has arisen in the in the community about changes in schooling. So I think it's really interesting. A lot of these groups uh, sort of battle to try to claim that they are grassroots organizations. Um, and most groups are most groups aren't right. Grassroots means are that not. sort of a, are not yes. are these like a bottom up organizations that emerge uh, from sort of, you know, the people. And so Moms for Liberty was founded by, I think, three moms out of Florida. Um, and so it might not surprise you that they are their sort of policies are aligned in many ways with uh, that of Ron DeSantis. Um but, you know, they, they are recruiting candidates who do live in these communities, um, and they are made up of people who are in these communities. But what's very murky, uh, because of the type of organization that they are and because of the way finance laws in the U.S. Uh, for political entities and political nonprofits work, um, the money comes from national donors often, and they have connections to a lot of sort of longstanding far-right and conservative groups. Also dark money. Yes, right. And that's and so it's sort of hard to trace the origins. Um, and so I think that what concerns a lot of folks in terms of thinking about this sort of national agenda is then, first of all, we get this, there are... Uh, platform or agenda is all sort of developed nationally, and then they use that to train local candidates. And so it's not necessarily responsive to what's happening in schools. Uh, And so when you see Moms for Liberty candidates, they're going to have sort of similar policies in many different districts, even though those districts might be facing really, really different constraints, really different. uh, They might have different strengths, different weaknesses, Mm -hmm. um, and have different needs. Mm -hmm. And so... 
we're sort of talking about uh, books and curriculum across all of these different districts. And frankly, those library inventories aren't even the same in different districts. Um, And so you sometimes sort of get weird anomalies where, um, you know, a parent might come and complain about a book in a library that they've heard about through Moms for Liberty. um, And they want to sort of come and say, like, this book shouldn't be in our library. And and the school's response is that book isn't even in the library. Mm. Um, (laughs) Or, you know, they, they get training on, like, how to go and use the library's card, electronic card system and look up all the books with, like, a certain word in it. Yeah. Um, and so that's sort of, like, we're seeing that in all of these different districts. And it's the same books getting challenged in Indiana and in Ohio and Iowa um, and across, I think, Moms for Liberty is in 45 states right now. Yeah. Uh, for those, as, as awareness of Moms for Liberty grows, there must be those who do not agree with the aims of Moms for Liberty. Are they also organized? Is there pushback against uh, the candidates, the people who stand up at school board meetings and, and advocate for the changes that uh, Moms for Liberty would? Yeah, so I'm going to sort of rely here on more knowledge of Mount Vernon (laughs) and the context, uh, is that when this has happened, um, you know, there was uh, last summer a sort of a challenge to some books in the kindergarten curriculum. um, And you did have a few parents sort of showing up in support of removing certain books from the elementary curriculum. But you also had, I mean, dozens of parents outnumbering uh, sort of the original group of challengers showing up in support of that inclusion of those books in the curriculum. Um, And that's sort of been a theme uh, anecdotally across the country of a Moms for Liberty candidate or or parent might come in and challenge a book. But then you see this sort of like uprising in the community mm. uh, of people who are sort of like not here, um, like not <laughs> like a version of not in my backyard. Uh, and so in a sense, like I think that um, the organization against Moms for Liberty is one that's rooted locally and that there's not necessarily a group that mirrors the organization of Moms for Liberty nationally that is pushing back. Mm. Uh, The only thing I can sort of think of is the teachers unions um, that have already this organizational structure uh, and Moms for Liberty has sort of themselves sort of pitted themselves against teachers unions. Mm -hmm. We're coming up on a break in about a minute, but does Moms for Liberty more or less line up with conservative Republicans as a voters group and those against Moms for Liberty more or less line up with maybe Democrats and some independents? Yeah, I think that's pretty fair that those cleavages are pretty similar. There are some uh, places where Moms for Liberty, I think, has made inroads among perhaps moderate Democrats. But uh, we have seen in public opinion polls that book bans and anything like book bans, even if you don't want to call them that, are deeply, deeply unpopular. And so Moms for Liberty has a political weakness there. Mm. Okay, we'll be back after a short break. Uh, We're talking about local elections uh, with Megan Goldberg, Assistant Professor of American Politics at Cornell College in Mount Vernon. As you've been hearing a vast amount of knowledge uh, after interviewing, what did you say, about 50 uh, school board members uh, with your study here, uh, talking about this increased stress of being a school board member, uh, who wants to serve. When we come back, we'll talk about the differences perhaps between urban and rural settings for school boards, and then also include another guest, Dave Peters, professor of sociology. He's a rural sociologist connected with Iowa State University, and we'll get his thoughts about the lack of participation in local communities and their elections. It's River to River from IPR News.
This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. Back with more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer today, focusing on next week's school board and city government elections all across Iowa. Uh, We hope you're registered to vote to find out if you are. Uh, You can check out voterready.iowa.gov or just uh, look for the Iowa Secretary of State's uh, website uh, with your browser. And uh, we're uh, currently with Megan Goldberg, a political scientist at Cornell College, really dug into um, uh, the data connected with the school boards, school board elections, how they're changing, how um, it's becoming increasingly stressful for members of a school board across the country, also here in Iowa. Uh, She talked about consensus building being sort of uh, what School boards are traditionally known for, but then uh, enter polarization, of course, our partisan politics, uh, shaping also the school board level uh, discussions here. Before we uh, say hello to another guest from ISU, uh, Megan, I wanted to get your initial take on uh, rural versus urban uh, school districts and how those school boards have been affected perhaps differently. Yeah. So what's interesting sort of to to link this to Moms for Liberty is that the vast majority of people who live somewhere with a Moms for Liberty chapter and perhaps Moms for Liberty candidates are actually people living in blue or purple suburban areas, Hmm. uh, not really conservative or really rural areas uh, and also places that have become more diverse over the last 10 years. Um, And so in Iowa specifically, rural districts are going to look a lot different um, in part because there might not be sort of a demand uh, for Moms for Liberty there. Um, They are perhaps less politically divided in some ways, but they are also sort of facing a very severe set of resource constraints um, that rural schools have to deal very immediately with threats of consolidation, um, dealing with even just the uh, infrastructure that they have and trying to get students to to their schools. and the the ESAs, the educational savings accounts, uh, and the policy passed by uh, the legislature and signed by the governor last year has sort of put even more pressure, uh, perhaps, on those schools. Uh, and of course, public school funding didn't go up by a lot last year. And so rural schools, I think, uh, in some ways face these other concerns that are so pressing and so difficult to deal with um, that they have they almost have to deal with those and they can't worry about these other issues uh, that Moms for Liberty uh, brings up. But they also don't necessarily have the same um, th- don't experience the same demographic changes that suburban or urban school districts are facing that in many ways threatens the the um, lifestyle and, and values of the people who join Moms for Liberty. Yeah. Um, and we also see that um, those school districts don't get as much coverage. There's less information about them. And so people don't know about those elections as much as they know about the Lynn Mars and the Cedar Rapids and the Iowa City uh, elections that we see a lot more coverage of. Mm-hmm. Do we see fewer people or people giving up those posts uh, saying it is becoming more stressful, perhaps not for increased partisanship, but because of the uh, financial strictures that um, 
um, rural Iowa is experiencing? Yeah, I mean, so I think they have a much tougher job when it comes to sort of dealing with the finances, which for a long time was the main sort of role of school boards, uh, was dealing with bond issues and um, how do we fund the schools and personnel issues. Um, And so rural schools also have to figure out how to get teachers to come work there um, and how you can pay teachers enough to come work (laughs) there. Um, And so they have all of these other things that they sort of have to worry about. Um, And so it's a stressful job in a different way. And I think also during the pandemic, what we heard from rural school districts was that the you know, they had a lot of the same problems urban school districts had, especially if they have a lot of students who are below the poverty line, who are on free and reduced lunches, trying to feed those children. Um, But also, I mean, the idea of just sending students home with a laptop so that they can uh, zoom into school was just not feasible for these rural districts because they didn't have that technology already. They didn't have the sort of one-to-one And our rural infrastructure was not what it is in the urban areas. And and they didn't have internet access. And so, you know, dealing with that was sort of a much different type of burden than some of these other school districts who the families and the parents are wealthier and concentrated to a geographic area. It was a little easier, uh, not easy, but easier and different to deal with. Mm -hmm. Political scientist Megan Goldberg of Cornell College uh, with us uh, this hour. Uh, Let's uh, welcome uh, Dave Peters. He's a professor of sociology, extension rural sociologist at Iowa State University. Uh, For some 25 years, he's been doing research on rural communities. Dave, welcome back to our program. Thanks for having me, Ben. You've been listening in to, to this discussion uh, with Megan, and uh, let's broaden it out to, to more of your expertise, uh, past school boards to uh, city government elections, uh, city council, mayoral, uh, in rural communities. What are your observations about how those have changed in recent years? Yeah, I mean, I think it's first to point out that out of Iowa's 940 cities and towns, about 800 of them, about 87%, are under 2,500. Uh, So you think about that, 800 towns, very small, everyone needs a mayor, everyone needs a a city council, and most of these towns are shrinking. So one of the biggest issues facing people running for local elections or willing to serve on commissions or other appointed boards is that the population is shrinking and aging. So There isn't young people coming forward to take over those leadership roles and the number of people available to serve on these uh, elected positions and appointed positions is getting fewer and fewer. What I've noticed also is some generational change uh, favoring most younger people tend to favor more informal kinds of participation and volunteering, wanting flexible times, short-term commitments, uh, being able to pick and choose the tasks. And I think, you know, the whole what Megan has described very well is that the polarization of local governance, even in small towns, uh, political polarization, stress of being a local leader, and falling trust in, in government at all levels has really sort of repelled people away from from serving. And so what I've been documenting small towns in Iowa for the past 25 years, and the number of people that actually served in an elected or appointed position back in the early 90s was about 45, 46%. Today, it's about 23%. Mm. <laughs> so large fall in number. So it's a very small, small group of people who are serving on elected bodies and appointed positions, which is, and most of them are baby boomers. And so, you know, that is, they're not going to be there forever. So we really are worried about who is going to be this next generation of leaders um, to take over the reins. And 
current examples that we've been talking about on the show, or even you and others have been talking about on the show, really don't do much to encourage people to get involved. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, who wants all that stress for <laughs> perhaps an unpaid uh, position uh, that takes a lot of time here? What are these rural communities doing when they have so few people who are willing to serve in these posts? Uh, you have vacant posts. Uh, do people double up, have multiple uh, responsibilities where before they were divvied up between several people? Yeah, I mean, there's an old joke in rural extension, and it's always the same 10 or 15 people that you see <laughs> that are on the cultural board, on the school board, on city council. It's sort of people wear multiple roles. And because uh, they have to do that, they usually tend to be people that are retired or people that have really vested interests. And so I think, um, so some of the research that we've done says we've identified towns that have had really high rates of people being in elected positions and people being appointed to positions. And what we find is that residents in those towns feel that they say they trust local government much more than people in communities where hardly anyone, there's only a small group of leaders, uh, they see their leaders as more trustworthy, as more better informed, and more willing to share power than than concentrating it. So, you know, I, I think the more you get the people involved in leadership positions, the more understanding they are about the challenges those leaders face. And that tends to lead, at least in, in the communities that I see, to more understanding and support for local leaders. So, uh, in most Iowa communities, the the, the common is uh, the common response is that you have leaders that stay in for very long periods of time. I can name probably a dozen towns where people on city council have been there for 30 plus years, mm. yeah. um, which isn't very good. You don't want people in their late 70s and early 80s making decisions for the town for the next 10, 20 years. Other towns have managed to mentor young leaders and and kind of take people under their wing, identify leaders early on, kind of grow them into positions. And these towns have much more diverse leadership. Now, when I say diverse, I mainly mean in terms of gender and age, not really in, in racial or ethnic uh, diversity. But there are a small number of towns that have made a concerted effort to uh, bring on new leaders, identify new leaders, mm -hmm. and really having the senior leaders, the older leaders, really lending their advice, their advice and gravitas and just personal wisdom to help these new leaders succeed. And so there is some encouragement encouraging signs. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, I wanted to jump in just on that on that note because what you're describing may describe some of the you know, the hollowing out of of rural uh, America in the Midwest, but we see uh, the most some of the most vibrant communities are ones where there's been an influx of Im immigrants. Is that also uh, when you talk about sort of more of these entrepreneurial, forward-looking communities that do have people looking for office workers? Does that line up with communities that do have an influx of uh, immigrants? I would say that well, most of the leaders are not uh, residents of color at this point. But the existing leadership that's almost entirely white does recognize, I was, in, two weeks ago I was in a town in, in north uh, central uh, Iowa that really recognized this issue. And we're really trying to work with Extension to make a concerted effort to reach out to their residents of color, try to identify who would be interested in being a leader, how do we get them involved. And so a lot of these more progressive towns, I'll say, and I don't mean progressive in a political sense, but progressive in the sense of advancing the community forward, have realized this is an issue. They realize this is a growing segment, the only growing segment of their population. And they realize they need to get you know, their residents of color involved in leadership positions to move forward. So there are towns taking steps, conscious steps, deliberate steps 
to be more open and welcoming to uh, you know people of color in leadership positions. But as of right now, it's at the planning stages. ISU rural sociologist Dave Peters. Uh, Megan, you've been listening in here. Uh, what rings uh, true to you, or, or do you want to add to what David just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I think every, I want to echo everything he said, um, and that it's really telling when you sort of look at national surveys and levels of trust in institutions. Uh, as you go from the national government down to local government, people's trust goes up, uh, and people have much more trust in their own communities. And so I think Dave added sort of, uh, important nuance to that about what types of local power structures are more trusted. Um, but I also you know, went into a, a, maybe a bright spot um, is that there has been a lot of work in um, sort of media studies that when you get state and local media outlets that cover uh, local and state news, especially if they do that at the cost of covering less national news, um, that you see more involvement in your community uh, mm-hmm. with politics, um, more participation in just elections and also volunteering to run for office um, and less polarization uh, along partisan and sort of like the traditional partisan lines. Um, and so you know, providing that information can be really important. Um, the other thing I want to stress is that this sort of um, the recruitment process is really, really important, especially for school boards, um, but also for other local and state offices, um, is that there are a lot of people, especially people of color, especially women, who are really hesitant to raise their hands to run for things. But if someone asks them and says, like, I think you would be good for this, um, we know that that's really, really powerful in not only getting them to run for perhaps a local office, but then later running for state or even national office. Um, But it's all about somebody recruiting you and sort of mentoring you through that process. Dave, back to you. I know uh, you could talk for a moment, and we just have a couple of minutes about some offices on the ballot that are often overlooked, and we we might go into the voting booth and say, oh my gosh, I have no sense of what I should do there. Uh, These are uh, what, what types of offices that we might find on our ballot. Well, probably in most rural communities are those that serve as hospital trustees. So if you have a county hospital or regional hospital, you oftentimes have people that are elected to the board of trustees that make decisions for the financial livelihood of the hospital, what kinds of services. People really don't know that they elect uh, hospital trustees in their community. Uh, Community colleges in Iowa are a little bit unique that each community college region uh, has representatives that advise the community college on programs that fit the needs of the area. And then if you're interested in the environment or environmental quality, almost every county has a soil and water commission as well. So there's all these offices uh, that people don't see on a day-to-day basis, but when they get the ballot, they kind of scratch their head. Oh, I didn't know we had that. And there's usually one name. Uh, So I think... uh, you know, it'd be better for the, those agencies should do better, a better job at reaching out to interested parties that might be willing to lend their advice and guidance and run for one of those offices. Yeah. Dave, Dave quickly, uh, and then I'll go to Megan on this too. What about turnout with all these changes we've talked about this hour? How has it affected turnout, Dave? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Depends on the community. Um, I would say that voter turnout is generally you know, this this election coming up, because it's not a presidential, it'll probably be lower than it typically would uh, next year at this time. Uh, but usually people come out for either a big statewide office or a national elected office like uh, presidential election. You know, these kinds of elections generally tend to have low voter, voter turnout in most uh, communities. And one way to think about that, if you do go out and vote, you have more power. 
with your vote <laughs> because there are fewer voters. Megan, your final thoughts. Yeah, I just to echo that off-cycle elections really favor um, people getting involved and your vote has a lot of power. And if you tell 10 of your friends to go out and vote, you might <laughs> change the outcome of an election. Um, and it also means, though, that other organized groups that you don't agree with can be really powerful, too. So it's a good reason to go out uh, and, and organize your community. Mm-hmm. Uh, Megan, where do you see this nationalization of our local elections going to Moms for Liberty? Uh, what are you watching in the future with your research? Uh, you know, so one of the things I am looking uh, at um, is thinking about if we'll see changes reflected in how these campaigns are administered uh, and sort of the legal ramifications. So I have been thinking and looking at when school board uh, and local candidates have to report any campaign contributions, which um, you basically can't find out during the election season because it's so short. And uh, so I'm looking to see if there's any legal changes to increase the transparency uh, of funding now that there actually is funding um, of these local candidates, especially when it comes to school boards. Dave Peters, uh, 30 seconds for you. What are you watching? Uh, well, what I'm watching primarily is how communities are enforcing these norms of depersonalizing politics, of accepting controversy, because I've seen that as a big issue in, in rural Iowa and the rest of rural America, that you can't have any controversy. Uh, people Per, you know, everything's personalized, and that's propelling people from politics. So I'm really hoping that on this off-cycle election, uh, people really begin to get back to those, enforcing those community norms of civility and focusing on what's good for the community. Sounds like a good note to end on. Uh, Dave Peters, professor of sociology, extension rural sociologist at Iowa State University. Thanks for coming into the studio, Dave. Thanks, man. Megan Goldberg, uh, assistant professor of American politics at Cornell College. Always good to have you on our airwaves. Thanks, Ben. River to River, today produced by Sam McIntosh with help from Caitlin Troutman. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.